The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Every morning, or many mornings at least, I write in a journal, and I have for decades. I do so in part to keep track of my life. I tell myself that someday, in a rocking chair on a porch somewhere, I will read through them all, just like I will look through those thousands of pictures that I keep having to spend more money to store digitally and all the half-finished scrapbooks during that period of a hobby that I had around those. Writing in my journal is also a piece of my spiritual practice. It's this time that is carved out, this space at the table to reflect on the day before. And sometimes I learn something while I'm doing it. A month ago, looking back on what I remembered as a perfect day the day before, I realized how perfect it was and how completely, utterly, unimpressively ordinary, too. Which prompted me to think about this idea of the ordinary and our relationship to it. Sarah Wilson, in her book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, writes about how often she has danced with the habit of looking for happiness outside of herself, as so many of us do dance at times with. And also how this focus outward seems to come hand in hand with a kind of infinite escalation of what it will take for the outside world to make us feel happy. Tied to that, I think, is our relationship to the ordinary. When you and I say ordinary, it's often not a compliment. It's something we devalue when we call it that. The ordinary is the commonplace. It's the everyday. And it's also implied, I think, in our use that it's also boring, it's the mediocre. It's something that is held up against the special, the extraordinary, extraordinary, we never say, for instance, last night I went out and went to my favorite restaurant for an ordinary meal there. <laughs> or, we cooked ordinary homemade chocolate chip cookies last night. <laughs> to be worthy of naming, it has to be special. And the implication is that we always would prefer the special if we can find it, if we can afford it, if we can create it. I mean, who willingly settles? It can show up in our relationship to stuff. The extra soft sheets from Egyptian cotton of this count or that, I've lost count, actually. The hand poured over coffee instead of brewed. You name it, if it can be packaged for sale, it has been and it will be in the quest for the special and the novel. But I don't actually want to go down the path of 
this being a sermon about how consumerism and capitalism fuel this escalation and all the evils of it, the false promises embedded in both systems, the negative externalities and human environmental costs of all of this, though all of that is worth talking about, it's a ship we desperately need to turn around to save our lives in the quest for soulful living, for sustainable life together, but I want to fight to define some boundary that makes this sermon about more than just that. I mean, this escalation I'm talking about, it can show up in our relationship to experiences. Extreme sports sometimes strike me as this same escalation and diminishment of the ordinary. Like, skiing isn't enough. All the beauty of going down a slope, the wind blowing in your hair, the mountains. Instead, you have to try backcountry skiing, right? No lifts, no trails, the risk of avalanche or industry of injury, and the scarcity of that experience for those who have done it. Anything we do, it seems, that can be ordinary, we humans somehow find a way to escalate. And a piece of this can be the human drive for challenge, which I respect. And a piece of this is probably tied to our thirst for novelty, which I think is hardwired in us. But there is a piece in the shadows that is about a sense that what is ordinary isn't valued or worth as much in some calculus unarticulated of a life that is worth living. A special life has to be filled, it seems, with special things, and those aren't everyday common things. But is that true, that last statement? A special life, which is to say a good life, one we enjoy and find fulfilling, one that is delicious, has to be filled with special things, things that aren't commonplace? Are ordinary things less delightful, for instance? Well, let's think. I'm a huge fan of apples. I have at least one a day, so let's take the apple. Any ripe apple, any apple that tastes like an apple, juicy, sweet, or tart with the flavor profile of that kind of apple, some apple right in the middle of the profile. That is to say, some ordinary Granny Smith apple, for instance. Isn't that apple lovely? Is it less delicious or gorgeous by being commonplace? Or take the nap. Any nap, say, that lasts between 20 minutes and an hour. Any nap that takes place where it's quiet or noisy, warm or cold enough for you to be able to stay asleep. That is to say, an ordinary nap. Isn't it delicious? One of life's most pleasant gifts? 
even and especially if you have one, if you manage to have one every day, would it ever be less so for being less common? Or a day, any day, all days that begin like days do, like the one in Mary Oliver's poem, the day that begins with trees dripping somewhere with dew and sunlight pink and falling like glass on the wetness of everything, a world beginning to wake and shake itself free from sleep. Isn't that day, that ordinary day that breaks the way days always do predictably, normally, isn't that something we part the curtains or the leaves to like tissue on some vast, incredible gift? Is it any less so after 30 of those days in a row or 54 years of them? Is Mari's morning with Michael and Cato Pierre with bedhead and berries and coffee and dimples when they show up and a blue sky any less special because it happens, oh, predictably I'm imagining every day, as common as mud as the poet Marge Piercy would say. Someone once told me, someone who works in hospice and has all those conversations that many of us are afraid to have or feel ill-equipped to have with those who stand on the precipice of dying. They said that in those conversations, what people most often speak of most fondly and wish they could have more of, yes, it isn't the hours in the office, we all know that, <laughs> but it isn't often the time they parachuted from an airplane or a wish to relive one more day at Disneyland. <laughs> no, what they pine for is the ordinary days, apparently, most people. What they love and loved and want more of is apparently the ordinary. It's another dinner with loved ones at the table, another of those Saturday morning runs through the neighborhood while the world slept, one more day to put your kids or grandkids to bed with a bath and a story. In Thornton Wilder's play, Our Town, Wilder walks us through life in an ordinary place, if you remember the play in Grover's Corners, New Hampshire, which, unlike Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon, where everyone is above ordinary, is instead a place Wilder makes explicit and clear where everyone is ordinary. In fact, he opens by telling us that he can't point to anyone of note who's ever come out of this place. And then he invites us to step into their daily lives, ordinary as they are. And in the last scene of the play, it's forwarded some years we are to when one of the characters, young Emily, now married, dies in childbirth and joins the world of the dead. And there she talks with her former neighbor and others who have passed away before her, and she finds out that she actually has the option to go back and live beside the living if she chooses to, though her elders discourage it. 
She can go back to her life any moment, past or present. At first, Emily wants to choose a special day, maybe the day when she and her future spouse realized they were in love. Some extraordinary day in this life just ended, but at the advice of her mother-in-law, Mrs. Gibbs, she hears that in fact she should choose an unimportant day, Gibbs says. Choose the least important day in your life. It will be important enough. And it is. Emily goes back to an ordinary day, one she couldn't even remember before it started to replay. And she's struck by the poignancy of everything she sees, all the people she loves alive and so unaware of what they have in the moment, something only it sees the dead can reliably see. Just for a moment now, we're all together, Mama, she says to a mother who cannot hear her across the veil. Just for a moment, we're happy. Let's look at one another. And Emily is struck by what she missed I didn't realize Mama's sunflowers and food and coffee and new ironed dresses and hot baths and sleeping and waking up. Oh, Earth, you're too wonderful for anybody to realize you. Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it every, every minute? A friend sent me a photo of her child, now a young adult, walking. It was a picture from behind of him and his current love interest. A summer's day, they were all out to go on some errand or outing. No one was particularly dressed up. You could see the two walking together, their, their fingers interconnected, just a couple of them, relaxed, giving off that feeling of two people who are at ease with each other, talking about nothing in particular. There are moments as good as these in life, I texted back to her immediately. But none better. How do we see what's right in front of us with Emily's eyes? with what we too know in certain moments with keen clarity, how to live in praise of the ordinary, not tempted to discount it or devalue it, but to see it and know it for what it is. Perhaps, perhaps if we do, we will become like the poets do, seeing and singing the praise of the sacred ordinariness of it all of Marge Piercy in her poem, Welcome Morning, who writes how, quote, she means but often forgets to fall down by the kitchen table in a prayer of rejoicing. 
or Lucille Clifton in her poem, Cutting Greens, who writes of this intimate moment in the kitchen, I hold their bodies in obscene embrace, thinking of everything but kinship, collards and kale strain against each other away from my kiss-making hand and the iron bed pot. The pot is black, the cutting board is black, my hand, and just for a minute, the greens roll black under the knife and the kitchen twists dark on its spine, and I taste in my natural appetite the bond of live things everywhere. The ordinary and this invitation to live in praise of it. I realized in writing this sermon that I was tempted periodically in poetic preacher excess to say something about the extraordinary ordinary, except that this would belie the point. Because what I want to leave us with this morning to name and to recall to us from our own places of knowing is the grounding and the delight of the simply ordinary in our days. Simply that, remarkably that. Because recently I had a thoroughly ordinary day and I realized in writing in my journal the next morning that if I had to live again a day, just one, I might choose that one. It had everything that makes me happy, which it turns out is as common as mud. I love you all. Bless us all in our days and the deep, poignant living of them. Amen. An Ordinary Morning. My partner Michael and I are bedhead virtuosos. As if made by aberrant birds, our morning quaffs couldn't be more different. His nest is made of ethereal white gossamer and seems to have been weaved by orioles, while mine made of substantial coarse strands, weighs on my head like an eagle's nest. Unlike Michael, who immediately slides his hand over his hair, no matter how much I beg him not to touch it before he looks in the mirror, I love to see what the night wrought atop my head. I go directly to the full-length mirror and crack up like a nine-year-old girl at the sight of myself. And if the structure on my head is particularly glorious, I leave it in place for a while. In the kitchen, our cat Cato makes funny, excited quacking sounds as we prepare breakfast. Cato gets his first. Then I turn on the coffee maker as Michael puts croissants in the toaster oven and begins putting berries into bowls. By the time I'm done setting the table, Cato will have wolfed down his food and we open the curtains in the front window to watch the birds and the people go about their morning business as we wait for Michael. Cato doesn't care about most birds, but when he sees a raven, he says, So now I know how to say one word in cat.
Raven. Finally, the time comes to sit at the table. Sometimes, Cato asks for a taste of croissant, and we call him Cato Pierre. And sometimes, as we quietly savor our coffee, Michael's dimples make a rare appearance as he looks at me across the table, and I melt faster than the butter on my croissant. And for the life of me, I become a satin bowerbird, transfixed by all things blue. Berries, Michael's eyes, and ordinary, gloriously ordinary morning skies. <laughs>